prior to Trump, it, it, I started around 2013, 2014, I started to get really disillusioned with the state of our politics um, and seeing that the current options and the current system really was not serving people. And as someone who got into it, motivated really to serve and motivated to small d, you know, democratize politics to give people a greater voice in the process, I started to get more reform-minded and, and Trump really accelerated that. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast an awesome civic entrepreneur uh, and former vice presidential candidate. That's right. She was Evan McMullen's running mate in 2016, and she's been doing good before and since. Mindy Finn, welcome, Mindy. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to be here and see you again. Yeah, great to see you as well. We saw each other last in D.C. at one of those Save Democracy conferences. Uh, has democracy been saved yet? I guess not. Uh, so you and I are still <laughs> in the thick of it. Uh, so right now you're the CEO of Citizen Data, which you started a number of years ago. You guys just came out with a fascinating new report. Uh, what is Citizen Data? Yeah, so Citizen Data is a data analytics and research company. We're actually a company, but all for social impact. That was really responding to the need for better nonpartisan data in the political sphere and policy and cultural sphere that can truly help us to, to bridge divides. You know, the, the major investments and in plays politically, just like it's been in kind of all parts of our ecosystem um, when it comes to data, have been for Republicans to win or Democrats to win or, you know, to win very hot button um, ideological Republican policy fights or Democratic fights. And so we just thought there was a real opportunity for an infrastructure that could serve what we kind of anticipated would be a growing need for data and analytics that can can bridge divides and, and chart a new path forward. Well, you were prescient uh, and on the spot and building a, exactly what we all need. Um, but you got into this work uh, a bit before then. Can you trace your career path uh, a little bit? You worked in tech and then uh, wound up uh, in the intersection of tech and politics. How, how the heck did uh, you start heading down this path? Yeah, no, it's um, I've been um, a, a little bit of a unicorn. Fortunately, not your classic tech unicorn, you know, that gets mixed to billions of dollars in, in a company. But um, but from a political perspective in that I, I really I started actually my career as a journalist very early on, um, just had this interest, did have an interest in politics and um, and service and, and covering politics and just happened to have an internship my senior year. Um, where I was assigned to write for a newspaper uh, in Connecticut, and my first day on the job was 9-11. Um, wow. And yeah, talk about getting thrown right into the deep end. So suddenly, like the reason a student 20-year-old like me had an opportunity to write and cover Washington is at the time, no one really cared that much what was happening in Washington. Back when we had newspapers, those stories were back of A section or B section stuff. But suddenly I was covering 9-11. Um, but also as part of those internships, I kind of, um, again, this the internet obviously was on the rise in journalism, but it wasn't taken seriously enough that serious journalists were really paid to do it or there was any budget dedicated. So I had a lot of opportunity um, to kind of write and cover my own stories and my own topics. I did that for CQ 
which is now kind of folded into roll call, um, and and also for kind of local newspapers, and taught myself how to code and and how to do Photoshop and the basics things that you would need because I was had to be a one a one woman wow. show so to speak. So um, after nine eleven college, I, I decided I didn't want to be a journalist because I did have opinions and. Um, I, I wanted to actually be on the front lines and making a difference. And I made my way to Capitol Hill. And because of those skills that I had, I just kind of often was the person that was given the job to also, you know, do the website. And then I was recruited to the Bush campaign in 2004 to this very new thing called, they all called it an e-campaign, which is kind of a funny name these days to think about. But it was essentially the early days of digital politics. Um and got what I call kind of a 10-year education in one year as part of a very small department on the forefront of digital politics for the, the Bush reelect. And it led to a near kind of decade-plus career um, as, a, as a digital kind of a techie, a, a digital entrepreneur within the political system, um, and to time at Twitter and working for Google and whatever. Um, but really, prior to Trump, it, it, I started around 2013, 2014, I started to get really disillusioned with the state of our politics um, and seeing that the current options and the current system really was not serving people. And as someone who got into it, motivated really to serve and motivated to small D, you know, democratize politics to give people a greater voice in the process, I started to get more reform-minded and, and Trump really accelerated that. Well, heck, I mean, you, you did the craziest thing possible, which is you joined up with Evan McMullen in his presidential campaign in 2016, which I saw as a very, very noble effort. Uh, it might have uh, swung a state like Utah, where I think Evan got 20% or so. And I joke sometimes, Mindy, that I appreciate all the people who worked on my presidential campaign because... It was such an objectively unwise career move <laughs> that you know people aren't exactly going uh, into a campaign like that, like that, thinking I'm going to wind up on Capitol Hill um, straight after this campaign. So, how long had you known Evan, and how did you get involved with that campaign so directly? So, I certainly did not plan to run for vice president in 2016, um, or maybe ever. Um, to, to be honest. <laughs> well um, said. You were like, I was just going to wait a cycle or two before I yeah, I mean, my hand um, in the ring. There was someone, an old friend kind of in digital politics, um, Adam Connor remarked at the time, like I've long said the, the, the digital leaders on campaigns should start to become more campaign managers and senior staff, but Mindy's leapt even further ahead and, and is running for vice president. But I had been a, an early leader in the Never Trump movement, kind of a funny piece of lore is that I'm sometimes credited with starting the hashtag Never Trump. Well done. Um, and I, and I, yeah, and I, there were, a few of us founded a, a pack that was hash called hashtag Never Trump and raised some money to try. It was too late, too little, too late, but we did have some success in Ohio and other states. But, you know, he, he was already catapulting to the nomination at that point. Um, and, you know, as part of that was hooked up with this effort that was trying to get ballot access for uh, kind of a, a last ditch Hail Mary, you know, independent run and had been working on recruiting people like, Oh, Colin Powell or General Mattis or Condi Rice or something. When Evan's campaign folks reached out and asked if I would I would meet with him to first just advise on strategy and that kind of thing. And they arranged a phone call with me and him, uh, a meeting actually. And they said, just to, be just to prepare you, I think he's going to ask you to play Jill Stein in debate prep uh, because there might be the CNN debate among third-party candidates. So I thought, hmm, okay, like... 
that's why me, but I, you know, I guess I'm a petite Jewish woman and I've been around campaigns a lot, done some debate prep. So it could be kind of fun and whatever, I'll take the phone call. So there was a grilling on this phone call about my policy positions, about my character, about, you know, a number of things that I thought was all a precursor. And he told me he was likely to ask me something at the end of the call. I thought that question was going to be, will you play Jill Stein in debate prep? Instead, at the end of that conversation, the question was, would you consider being, I need to find a running mate, and would you consider being my running mate? I, that was a surprise, um, and I didn't have much time to really decide. Um, and so the time I actually had, I think my kids were like two and three. Again, as I said, I had business things going on. Um, I talked to my husband, but also what you said struck a chord, which is I did reach out to some friends and said, you know, very confidentially, what do you think? And their first reaction was, well, you do realize this could kill your career. Like, so have you thought about that? You know, it, it's like, if you want to do it, you should do it. I understand why you might be morally motivated to do it, but it could be a career killer. Um, and I, I, so I, I went in knowing that that may be the case. And, um, I wouldn't say it was a career killer, but it certainly closed a lot of doors on the path that I had been on before. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Well, in terms of closing a lot of doors, you mean within the Republican Party, you'd, you'd worked with a lot of Republican campaigns. And the Republican Party right now is facing a resurgent Trump candidacy. A lot of people feel like uh, it's 2016 all over again. What do you think the greatest hopes are in terms of not having Trump uh, as the nominee again in 24? So I have been pretty uh, consistent, unwavering um, in not underestimating Donald Trump from the beginning. Um, and I am still there. I think... We, I think as a country, we have been late to, 
and we've underestimated the threat. And a lot of time, not when I say we, obviously that's not everybody, but collectively there's more people that have kind of underestimated the threat and then came to understand it later. But we've also kind of underestimated, you know, his political longevity and his, his political talent and appeal. I mean, he's incredibly popular. He, he's lost, obviously, some popularity within the Republican Party from his peak, but he still has a strong and extremely loyal base. And he still is able to benefit from a politics of fear and grievance and victimhood. And so the, the more that he is um, under attack, that strengthens him, which we saw with the recent indictments. And so given all that, kind of to get to the, the punchline on it, um, I, I mean, I think he's the presumptive nominee in the Republican Party um, today. You know, I thought that a month ago, a year ago, you know, two years ago, if he decided to run again. And from everything that I've analyzed, I don't, see, unfortunately, see that changing. And um, I talked to a lot of other political prognosticators, even in battleground states. And I, I do think, you know, there's a little bit of, um, I understand it. You got, you got to be hopeful, or you don't get into politics, right? You got, you got to believe in the impossible. And go for it, but um, kind of crafting out these various scenarios for others to get to the nomination. That you know, I'll go for it. Like I, I, I'm all for them. I, I think everyone they should try, and um, it, Trump should have competition and challenge and, and face you know real serious competition. But um, right now, you know, he's he's the presumptive front runner and, and most likely nominee. So aside from Ron DeSantis, who do you think uh, is the greatest challenge to Trump? Uh, either data-driven or, uh, you know, from your, your gut shooting from the hip. I'm, I'll just throw out, I feel like Tim Scott has, like, a really good energy and profile and has a high ceiling, and I hear yeah. really good things about him from people that know him. Um, so that that's one of my dark horses. Like, uh, do you have him or another? Yeah, right. So I think it has to be somebody. I mean, I, I think it's going to be a really tough road for, for anyone, um, but it would need to be somebody who actually can differentiate themselves from Trump. Um, not somebody who's been a never Trumper. That's not going to work in the party. But um, but someone who who has a unique um, who can operate in a unique lane. Which DeSantis's problem is he doesn't entirely do that. Obviously, people like Mike Pence don't do that. Nikki Haley has struggled to do that. Many of the other candidates struggle to do that. I think someone like Tim Scott could potentially do that. Um, Asa Hutchinson is someone I would like to see also be successful because he has been a successful governor of a you know ruby red state. Um, and actually was able to, to bridge divides and, and get some really practical things done um, amid, again, a very ideologically conservative state. Um, he, I think, managed COVID much better than, than others. So he has, uh, we, we saw how he operated in a crisis. I think it's a tough road for these folks, but it would be a, a Tim Scott or an Asa Hutchinson. Um, if a, you know, a Sununu ran, that would be you know, somebody who I certainly would be rooting for as well. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house 
and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So you decide to say yes to Evan, uh, even though, you know, you, I guess you understood there could be some profound ramifications. And Trump was very much uh, in control or about to be in control of the party at that time. Um, what were your experiences like on the trail? Uh, were you concerned about, frankly, threats to uh, your physical safety? Um, what what was campaigning with Evan like? Yeah. So in many ways, I mean, first of all, I would say it was overall a just an incredible experience and, and really transformative in, in my life. So I would do it 10 times over, even though it was only for a couple of months. Um, I like to say I got sort of in many ways the best ways of running for, you know, on a presidential ticket in that it was short lived. One didn't have to do it for two years, four years. Um, we didn't have to spend that much time raising money because we just didn't raise much money and it was too late. And we didn't have, you know, years of oppo flying at us. We did have some oppo and, and I'll get to the safety point in a minute. And I got to run, like really run with a partner. Like we both were first time candidates, um, kind of having to figure it out as, as we went. And, and then I think the thing that was kind of the um, theme around our, our campaign was just that we were wanting, we were giving voters an affirmative and a positive pro-democracy option at a time when voters were very dissatisfied um, with the two options. They saw both these candidates as corrupt. It was very much as it has tended to be. Um, there was a hold your nose effect where you would hear a lot from voters that they were having to go to the poll, thinking about going to the polls and having to hold their nose for one of those candidates, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Whereas our supporters would come and say, thank you. Like, thank you so much for giving me an affirmative option that we can go to the polls and vote for and be really proud, walk out with our head held high that we voted for, for you with your positive message, with your bridge building message, with your pro-democracy message, you know, your anti-corrupt and corruption message and beyond. Um, and so I just found it incredibly inspiring, especially when students would say, you know, this is my first time casting a vote. And I kind of didn't imagine this, is, you know, these, the way the presidential cycle had shaped up. I, I couldn't have imagined that. And now I get to vote for you or, you know, veterans who had said something similar just um, in the states we campaigned in, which were limited. But just Utah is where we ended up spending the most time at the end. You just saw like real. Uh, retail kind of local politics was just a ton of self-organizing, people organizing their own events for us, you know, setting them up at their town hall to make sure they had an opportunity to hear from that, from us. And um, it, it really felt like the best of America. On, on the other hand, we did, especially once we started to catch, you know, at least a bit of fire in Utah and appear to be a threat there, um, the Trump campaign in particular sent um, hecklers and detractors to our events um, who would cause a lot of problems um, and be yelling and screaming. Um, there were threats to our safety. 
there were cryptic letters that were sent to my home while I was traveling, you know, where my husband Terrible. and young children were at the time that, you know, we had to, you know, turn into the FBI. We ended up having to get security at the end. Uh, we couldn't qualify, you know, we didn't qualify for secret service. It was kind of too late anyway. So we had to hire our own private security. Um, so the, it was, um, you know, sometimes when I reflect back, there was, it was moving so quickly that I couldn't even fully appreciate at the moment um, the type of risk that we may have been facing. But it certainly was certainly there. And it, it certainly reminds me now of the types of risks, obviously, all people in public life face, but a lot of the election um, officials who, who had to stand up, particularly against their own party, for the legitimacy of the, the 2020 election results. It's gotten darker since even that cycle, um, though thank you for your service and your courage. Uh, and uh, congratulations on giving people something positive to vote for. So again, you did get, I want to say, about 20% of the vote in Utah, which is a freaking ton, I mean, if you think about it. Yeah. So in Utah, we got, it was like a little over 21%. I mean, at one wow. point, yeah, at one point we were actually pulling ahead or even with the other candidates. Trump actually, he didn't come to Utah, but he sent um, Pence there and Pence's big message. It was very clear and it was really powerful. It was really about two things. One was the Supreme Court and kind of like, you need to vote for Republican to get our judges on the Supreme Court and also just come home. Like, come home to the Republican Party. You know, you, this is home to you, which is really pretty interesting. You know, we think about politics as it really serves this role in people's lives of this place where they belong as their identity. And Pence tapped into that for the campaign. He told people, come home. And, and that really was effective, you know, for those Republicans. Um, but we still, yeah, we got uh, over 21% of the vote. And in Idaho, we got 12%, um, I, I believe. Um, you know, we weren't not all these ballots were counted everywhere because they don't count them unless they're going to make a difference on the outcome. But we got the highest number of presidential write-in votes sort of in any cycle ever, you know, up to that point. Um, so I'm very, I'm very, very um, proud of what we were able to do um, on a shoestring budget. You know, the dollar per vote couldn't be beat um, in terms of the amount spent versus um, you know, what we did. And, and more importantly, it was the message we were able to get across and, and form the foundation for a new movement in politics, which continues today. And, um, you know, you've really taken the mantle and are, are running with. It's awesome that you frankly managed to like get their attention to the point where they had to divert uh, Pence to head to Utah. Cause the last thing anyone thought was going to happen is they had to spend time in Utah. <laughs> so, so you guys did great. Yeah. It was really funny actually, cause Trump started to talk about our campaign, not even at his rallies, as we know, he's a little bit, sensitive, you might say. And so he didn't like the fact that there was any kind of challenge. Um, and so he's, he, he's like, there's this guy, Ben McMullen, who's, you know, campaigning, going coffee shop to coffee shop in Utah, which is like pretty funny because notoriously, you know, Utah is a heavily- They don't really drink Mormon so much state. coffee, Most right? of them don't drink much coffee, yeah. So shows how much he knew about it. So you transitioned from there uh, to just trying to movement build, um, you know, along with Evan Stand Up Republic, which became a new America, which now merged with the Forward Party. Um, so some of your former colleagues are now colleagues of mine, including folks like Miles Taylor. Um, and then you uh, simultaneously, I think, also started working on uh, what became Citizen Data. So what was the evaluation process like after the McMullen campaign? You guys sit together and be like, okay, guys. 
Now, that was great. We got all of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of votes. Uh, there are all these people want, want what we put out there into the marketplace. Um, so let's build on this. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I think Evan and I um, sat down and I, you know, I didn't make this clear earlier. We, re- we didn't know each other before we ran. We had a lot of mutual contacts and friends, uh, but we didn't know each other. So we met through the campaign, but really formed a, a good you know, professional partnership. Um, we're extremely aligned in the way that we saw the problems in the country and what we thought needed to happen moving forward. Uh, and I think when we, we, it was pretty quickly, we just really felt a responsibility um, to continue the momentum forward. Um, maybe be able to relate to this from your experiences yeah. running where, you know, you have these supporters who are, they're, they're so behind you and they put all this effort in and you know, we obviously had a very grassroots volunteer driven campaign um, and even though you know Trump won that, well, especially because Trump won that election, um, they're hungry for a place to to connect and continue to to build on that momentum and and to fix our politics. And and then I think the other thing that we really were concerned about is we started to learn about the existing uh, kind of infrastructure, I should say, of of nonprofits and advocacy organizations that were focused on democracy strengthening. Is that there was a real risk. Um, with Trump's election, that the whole cause of democracy would just become even more of a partisan cause, and meaning like only the Democrats would be associated with democracy. And I think that's a that's a really big problem for the country that we felt we needed to solve for. And so <clears throat> our whole kind of theory of change, you know, the problem that we were seeking to solve for was yes, to do grassroots movement building, but also to ensure that the fight for democracy, which was going to strengthen post-Trump, we knew it would. Um, would become a cross-partisan or, or non-partisan cause um, and not only be kind of centered and held within the, the Democratic Party. Well, heck, a lot of the folks who joined forward resemble people like you and Evan, um, where you would have classified yourselves as, let's call it, moderate Republicans uh, 10 years ago. And, and then now the Republican Party has shifted into something else. Uh, and uh, to me, it's one of the great problems is that you have, in my opinion, millions of uh principled, patriotic Americans who right now are like, well, I'm not in love with what's going on in my party. Let's call it the Republican Party. But, you know, certainly can't vote for anything with a D next to it. So, like, what are you going to do? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so the hope is that you could say, well, what you could do is join a group that actually is positive and stands for values. And it's not all about um, trying to defeat uh, the, the other side uh, all the time. And, um, and so you did that uh, with Evan. Um, uh, with both the campaign and what became a new America. We're trying to do that with the forward party. And I'm sure there are all these people around you who resemble that. I was with Governor Christy Todd Whitman uh, last night, um, the co-chair of the forward party, and she clearly resembles that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's right. And, you know, and, and you asked about kind of the citizen data. I think what ultimately, after a couple of years or so, when Evan and I were building Santa Republic and really starting to um, to feel good that, you know, for, I mean, tons of problems. We saw there was, there was a lot of problems to solve in democracy, but more people were starting to realize that, right? Like, it, there's still a lot more growth that needs to happen, but there were more organizations, more leaders, more funders, more, you know, more people pointed at the problem. Um, I, I just, what I started to feel was, I always kind of have this question, like, what is the highest value that I kind of personally can bring, you know, to the country? Like, what is the unique thing that I can do at this moment. And 
uh, it became clear that there was the need, there's a lot of infrastructure needs, but there was a, a data and research need, a need for the nonpartisan data uh, side of things. And that's what my specialty had been within the Republican Party. I did a number of things, but kind of the last thing I did was oversee the data um, technology and digital apparatus really for the entire kind of RNC. And so this is something that, you know, I, I can do. I can I can build this and it's going to be needed and it's going to take you know, time, obviously, for a more independent movement forward to, to grow and the ecosystem that you're tapped into. But we know this will be needed. So, you know, we'll start this and, and get moving. Um, and it's been really, I mean, one thing that I, I love about it, uh, I love a lot of things, but um, is that um, we, we really get to, we, you know, we've obviously group work with you and the forward party, uh, as well as other nodes within this ecosystem um, this carass of kind of organizations and leaders who, you know, don't agree um, on everything. Sometimes they don't agree on many things policy-wise and have different experience, but kind of share this fundamental um, love for obviously America, for democracy, and this agitating for for change and a better path forward. Um, forward. Like I keep, I keep like using your brand. Just naturally, you know, it just rolls yeah. off the tongue, Mindy. Yeah. That, 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 that's why it's there. So uh, you guys came up with a fascinating report of many, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure you're getting all sorts of uh, data. So some of the takeaways from it were that, uh, guess what? Turning off primaries actually really helps reduce extremism, where you're three times less likely to elect, let's say, an election denier or something along those lines. Um, there's been a lot of d data in the press recently from Gallup polls and other sources about the proportion of Americans who now identify as independents rising up to uh, uh, 49 or 50 percent. Um, so you are someone who is on top of the data, unlike just about anyone else. Uh, what did you get out of the latest report or really any of um, the, your recent findings? Yeah, I mean, so... I mean, there's sort of this key piece, which I know you track really closely too, which is the willingness to vote for uh, a third party or a different party than a Democrat or Republican candidate. And, and that number has kind of continued to grow. I mean, we have a majority of, of likely voters who are at least somewhat willing to, to vote for a third party candidate, if they say so, um, which is you know, obviously an important number to track. Um, I think the other thing that was really critical in the, the research that we did pre-election 2020 and post-election is that there's kind of this conventional wisdom among politicals, politicos, and even among researchers that democracy is just not an issue that voters really care about at all. You know, they could care about kitchen, quote unquote, kitchen table issues and, and democracy just doesn't matter. Um, and what we found that, that that's actually changing. So yeah, it was not the number one issue. Um, you know, by, by any means, the number one issue for voters tended to be inflation across the board. Um, you know, Republicans, for some of them, it's immigration and safety. And for Democrats, abortion was a big one this year. But um, democracy was ranking and protecting elections in particular was ranked right up there, three or four, particularly in battleground states um, where voters really understand kind of the way that the system of democracy, uh, the strength of our democracy truly does matter. Uh, and I thought that was one of the, the more interesting things that really kind of cuts against this idea that democracy doesn't matter. And in fact, among voters that 
Um, there weren't for you know at that point there weren't forward party options, um, but there were an expanded number of what we call shifters or split ticket voters um, who would vote for you know a Democrat for for one statewide office and a Republican for another statewide office. There were more of those in battleground states this year, and for those voters in particular, protecting elections, fair elections, um, ranked higher. Um, you know, then kind of your mean voter, which really indicates that for them, it, it may have been a voting issue, even if it's not the issue that it's, it's not the same as making sure they have enough money in their pocket. It's, it's pretty close. Um, so those are some of the things. I think the other thing that we do a lot of work on and we tracked in this recent report is just the, the uh, energy behind reforming the primary system and giving voters, you know, more options. Yeah, most voters want it. They vote it. Yeah, it's really popular. I mean, the only thing that's more popular, you know, than that when in kind of the realm of reform is just money and politics. I mean, voters see that as really the biggest problem. Um, and that's the harder one. It's and you know, I've you know been on panels about that. Um, there's things you can do, but it's it's a harder nut to crack. But democracy reform really has a lot of momentum. And in each individual state that we've looked at it as well as across the country, uh, both Republicans and Democrats uh, really want it. They want it. They want better representation, better options, more voice, more choice. Yeah, almost 60 percent of Americans want to get rid of uh, party primaries. So that's a great sign for, let's say, Nevada uh, next year. Uh, And what percentage of Americans say they're at least open to voting uh, for a third party? 60 percent. About the same, 60 percent. You know, obviously... Um, that's a lot higher than you need in theory. <laughs> you don't yeah. even need 51%. You know, you, you might need 35%. Um, I'd actually tell people the real number uh, of what you would need to get on board something like the forward party in earnest is o- only really more like 10% because in a polarized country, you could swing a lot of races and do a lot of good with that kind of base. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, um, I think the thing to look at too is younger voters. So the trends... Um... Younger voters hate the parties. Yeah, so younger voters are the most likely to identify as independent, be most dissatisfied with the two-party system, the most supportive of reform. Um, even you know, youngest the youngest Republicans, um, there's a like a major delta between support for democracy reform among younger Republicans and older Republicans, um, which I think is a, a really strong you know omen and gives us a really good foundation to build on for the future. Wow, Mindy, talking to you is so fun and encouraging. You've got so much good data. Uh, so let, let's say someone listening to this is like a relatively ordinary person. How can they keep up with you or even support the work that you're doing? Yeah, they, well, they can go to our website, citizendata.com. Um, you know, I would say to definitely, we have a number of reports that you can download and take a look at. Um, you can schedule conversations to talk to our team. If you're an organization that would benefit from data, we can serve you. Um, we're not, we're, you know, interestingly, we're not fundraising right now in the way that a nonprofit does. Um, we've raised some rounds of funding in the past. We may do that again. So if there's someone out there who's really interested in that, feel free to, to get in touch with me at Mindy at citizendata.com. Um, but otherwise, please do check out our website. And in particular, I'd say download that political impact report because that gives you a lot of the nuggets that you need to really build um, this new way in American politics and to truly understand uh, what's what's happening and what the potential is for change. There's so much good data in there. It's incredible. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, close with a question about AI. Um, so you're much more tech savvy than the average 
uh, political actor or journalist, that's for sure. Like, what, what do you think about the arrival of AI in, in this election cycle? Yeah, I think it's really, um, well, from my perspective, it's really exciting. I mean, I, I have concerns that you know, many share about some of the ethical issues and, and the ways that it will be utilized and just how, you know, how fast it's moving is both exciting and scary. And, and I get that. And we can hold that, those two truths at the same time. Um, but I, I'm really excited about it um, from the perspective of um, really just you know, understanding the American public and being able to be responsive to their needs at scale. Um, you know, and I, I actually think that I'm not too concerned about the political ecosystem moving too fast because the political ecosystem is just notoriously slow. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of speculation, for example, that AI will just absolutely replace things like survey research, you know, which our team does a lot of. Um, and I don't, I don't actually think that will happen so fast just because politi political people are just naturally slower to embrace change. But, you know, we're certainly using it. We've already been using a lot of sophisticated tools for natural language processing, even of survey results, um, you know, of online conversation, for example, to understand what people care about and what they're talking about, uh, to make sense and bring greater insight um, to the kind of American psyche um, and political it, if you will. So I, um, I'm really excited about it from that perspective, and and certainly you know my team of of data scientists and and political number crunchers are are having a field day with the increased openness to to AI you know, new AI tools, um, and we are you know stay tuned working on some fun things um, to to be able to very quickly make best use of them uh, as we head into the 2024 election cycle. Well, that's a more positive um, view on it um, than, than a lot of other folks have, and we'll take it. Uh, Mindy Finn, CEO of Citizen Data, most importantly, a true American patriot leader. Uh, so excited to be working alongside you in this space. And who knows, maybe you'll wind up on uh, another ticket at some point, another ballot. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, Andrew. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe a little with a little more pre-planning this time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Mindy. And really, congrats on, on everything. Likewise. Talk to you soon.